Welcome to the Learner Centered Spaces podcast, where we empower and inspire ownership of learning, sponsored by Mastery Portfolio. And I'm one of your hosts, Star Saxstein. I'm another host, Emma Chapetta. And I am Crystal Frommert. In each episode, we will bring you engaging conversations with a wide variety of educators, both in and out of the classroom. This podcast is created for educators who want to learn more about how to make the shift toward learner-centered spaces for their students, schools, and districts, or education at large. So get ready to be inspired as we dive right into the conversation with today's guests. Josh Eiler, PhD, is Director of the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning and the Director of the Think Forward Quality Enhancement Plan at the University of Mississippi, where he is also Clinical Assistant Professor of Teacher Education. He previously worked on teaching and learning initiatives at Columbus State University, George Mason University, and Rice University. A sought-after speaker for his expertise about the science of learning and about compassion in education, especially in connection with students, grades, and mental health. He has spoken at colleges and universities across the country, including Yale University, University of Texas, and Johns Hopkins University. Eiler is the author of the acclaimed book, How Humans Learn, The Science and Stories Behind Effective College Teaching published by West Virginia University Press in 2018, which Book Authority named 100 Best Education Books of All Time, called a, quote, splendid repository of ways to rethink how we teach college, end quote, by the Los Angeles Review of Books. It was named Book of the Year in the Chicago Tribune. His forthcoming book, Scarlet Letters, How Grades Are Harming Children and Young Adults and What We Can Do About It, published by West Virginia University Press, is about one of the most urgent issues in education today, grading and alternative assessment. In his free time, Eiler coaches his daughter's youth softball team and tries valiantly to perfect his gumbo recipe. Please welcome Dr. Eiler to our show today. Morning, Josh. It's so great to talk to you this morning. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, the role that you're in, your location, some interesting facts maybe that folks might not know? Sure. And thank you all for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, So uh, my name is Josh Eiler. I currently work at the University of Mississippi, where I'm the director of the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning. I'm also on the faculty in the School of Education. But my route to this position has been pretty circuitous. I grew up in a small blue collar town in Pennsylvania uh, and uh, really a very rural town, very working class, um, really intended to uh, go to college and go back to that town and be a high school teacher and a coach uh, originally. And in college, uh, I had some professors who uh, sort of led me to a different path and I wound up still very interested in teaching but uh, decided to try my uh, try out higher ed um, for that and went to graduate school at the University of Connecticut. Uh, after that, I, I took a position as a faculty member at Columbus State University, which is a regional mid-sized university in Georgia in the English department. But after I got tenure, I decided I wanted to be involved in teaching and learning issues 
um, at the institutional level and kind of with the conversations about teaching and learning at the national level. And so that led me to work in what we call centers for teaching and learning, which are pretty common in colleges and universities. And they focus on helping faculty and graduate students to develop the teaching skills uh, and to become more effective evidence-based teachers. So uh, I, I first went to George Mason University in Virginia as an associate director of their center. Then I moved to Rice University to uh, help, uh, help them start a new teaching center. And so I was the founding director there for a number of years. And more recently, I've moved to the University of Mississippi, drawn here both by uh, the mission of the university, which is, um, which is very equity-minded uh, and uh, is, is invested in social change for the state and the nation. Um, and also just the challenge of uh, rebuilding a teaching center and working on a critical thinking initiative that, uh, that I'm involved with here. So it's been kind of a winding path, not linear in any way. Um, and so I often think more about uh, what is the next challenge that I can work on rather than what is the next step of the ladder? And I couldn't help but notice a shout out for Houston, Texas with Rice University. Yes, so, indeed. Go Owls, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you have this background in higher ed, which is different than a lot of our listeners. So I'm really curious about your perspective um, on what a learner-centered space is. What does it look like, feel like, sound like? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I do have to say that, you know, one of the things I'm really invested in is building more bridges between um, the K-12 world and higher ed. You know, I think um, there is so much that higher ed can learn from the amazing work of K-12 teachers, far more than is often given credit for. And so I think we need more conversations uh, across those sectors. And so I think that it, this is an important work that you all are doing. Um, I think uh, probably a learning-centered space looks uh, fairly similar in higher ed as it does uh, in, in high school, but um, uh, sometimes the scale is a little bit different given the number of students in a particular classroom in higher ed. But, you know, I think in, in some ways, what defines a learning-centered space for me is students doing things, right? And sometimes that means a lot of activity, a lot of hustle and bustle and buzz as they share ideas and, you know, go to whiteboards and write things down or move around with sticky notes and things like that. Uh, but sometimes also students doing things uh, doesn't sound like anything. What it means is that students are working on beautiful, big, complex problems just on their own and trying to uh, create networks of knowledge, webs of understanding uh, and, and really build that work. So it doesn't, I, I think there's a misconception sometimes, at least in the higher ed space, that, uh, that active learning has to be noisy, loud, and boisterous. And certainly sometimes it can, can be, and sometimes it should be, but it's not always like that. For me, it means students who are grappling with ideas, they're doing things, they're actively working on particular problems or concepts or issues. That's so great. I love the kind of dichotomy that you've just painted for us between the hustle and bustle classroom and the like drill down and think about a hard problem because some of our best thinking is done silently. So yes, it's really nice absolutely. to appreciate both sides of that. 
<laughs> yes, I agree. Thank you for that. I love that. And, and a necessary part of teaching and learning is assessment. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, how does assessment play a role in this learner-centered space that you're describing? Right. Well, you know, um, in order to in order to help students uh, progress on their learning journey, they have to have feedback uh, as to you know their their checkpoints along the way. And that, for me, is the the role of assessment. True assessment means a teacher who is invested in a student's learning is giving uh, productive feedback that that student can use to take the next step. So, uh, you know, assessment uh, writ large for me, uh, that's the heart of it. Um, you know, but assessment means a lot of things in education. And I think uh, if, if we fold grades into assessment, what that means for students is that assessment is often something that happens to them not something for which they feel like they have any agency. Uh, and so, uh, you know, from my perspective, assessment should be something that helps students develop their own sense of themselves as thinkers and learners, should allow them to see where they still need to grow, give them a roadmap for doing that, should give them ample opportunity to fine tune their internal barometers for the strength of their work, uh, uh, what they still need to do, you know, that sort of thing. And that means really uh, reorienting, I think, uh, the, the more common ways that assessment is done in the classroom uh, and helping students to see assessment and grading as not something that, uh, not something that is designed to take away their agency, but something that should feed into it. Uh, I don't think that traditional grading practices are well positioned to, to do that. Uh, and so, you know, as you all well know, <laughs> um, there are, you know, lots of people experimenting with different approaches to assessment that I think more, um, more uh, ambitiously, more naturally fit in with helping students to grow rather than to just to evaluate students. Josh, I'm really excited that you work at second um at the college level on this, some of the greatest pushback I got while I was in the classroom mm -hmm. doing um, different kinds of grading and removing grades altogether was the big piece about, well, colleges don't acknowledge this practice as a means for helping students be successful when they get there. And, and especially at the high school level, that's mm -hmm. something we hear a lot. Can you speak a little bit to how the program you're working with now, as well as others, specifically addresses grading and assessment for new teachers and what we could tell high school guidance counselors and high school teachers about grading at the post-secondary level? Sure. That, that's such an important thing. And, uh, you know, interestingly enough, where we get to push back in higher ed is at the other at the other end of it, which is, you know, employers and graduate schools and medical schools are not going to like this. So it's kind of similar. But um, so uh, I'm writing a book called Scarlet Letters, which is about all the problems uh, with grades uh, and ways to fix it. And one of the things that I did was talk to admissions counselors in college about alternative transcripts uh, at the high school level. And kind of universally, I got, the, I, I got the message that it's not a problem, that alternative transcripts, alternative grading practices in high school are not a problem for admissions uh, because they have means to translate those transcripts. They have 
they have rubrics that they use uh, internally to uh, assess those transcripts. And I think uh, most importantly, uh, students who have experienced and who have been a part of alternative grading schemes in high school are better able to talk about what they know and can do than someone who just has an A for AP history or whatever. Um, and so I think that is the biggest message to, uh, to send to you know, uh, high school guidance counselors or any place that you're getting uh, pushback that, that it's not, and it does not impede uh, admission to college. In fact, I talked to an Ivy League admissions counselor who said it takes a little bit more time, but it's not an obstacle in other words, right? And so uh, that part of it, I think, is about, is about messaging. And I think there's a lot that we can do together to send that message. Um, I think the way that we're approaching the grading conversation in higher ed is through the lens of equity, uh, first and foremost, um, and the, to, to stress that uh, you know, inequities have been a part of the foundation of education in America for a very long time. And our traditional grading models are reinforcing those inequities rather than mitigating them. And so that some of, and some of the approaches that we can recommend in terms of reorienting those grading models um, help to reduce uh, the effects of some of those inequities. And so, you know, if you're seeing opportunity gaps uh, for incoming students in college that are mirrored in the grades that they're getting in gen ed courses, the, 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 the solution is not to keep grading like you have always been grading because those, uh, those are then reflections of those students' past educational experiences rather than, uh, rather than a picture of what they are able and what is possible for them to do. And so that resonates with faculty and with administrators in higher ed. They want their universities to be more equitable. Uh, you know, there's always resistance about changing anything in education. Um, but, I, you know, I think we're starting to see movement based on, uh, based on the, just the sense of we want, our, we want our departments, our majors, our disciplines to be more open and, and equitable and, um, uh, and uh, just welcoming to students from all educational and demographic backgrounds. And that means rethinking traditional practices and grading is right at the center of that. So if you were going to speak to somebody, either a colleague of yours or, you know, um, K-12 educators, what mm -hmm. advice would you give them to put them on this path? Sure. Well, the first, you know, the first conversation I tend to have with folks, and I, th I think it would be the first piece of advice, is to look inward, to be introspective about your values as an educator. What, uh, what do you believe is the purpose of education? What do you value most about education? Uh, and do your grading practices currently align with those values? At the same time, to be realistic and to lay out on the table, where do you feel the pressures uh, um, coming uh, that shape your teaching approaches? So do you, feel, uh, do you feel the pressure from, you know, your colleagues in your department? Do you feel pressure to, uh, to um, make sure that students uh, are, have a handle on a wide body of material in a particular course? Where do you feel the pressure? 
uh, put them on the table and really assess them and, and the degree to which uh, those are perceived or those are actual and to assess kind of the, um, the impact that has on the decisions that you can make as a teacher. Uh, I think that every decision that we make as teachers, but especially about you know, traditional practices like grading, has to start with us and that introspective look before we can make um, informed decisions about practices and before we, it, it helps to anchor then uh, any conversations that we have to have with colleagues about why we're doing what we're doing. From there, the next piece of advice, and you know, I think this is true of grading as it is for any teaching practice, uh, to, to be armed with research on why you're doing what you're doing. The, the decisions uh, that you're making are not arbitrary, uh, but that they are grounded in evidence, both, you know, both the kind of evidence that you get from your students every day, but also from research that people have done on the practices themselves and their efficacy. And I think the combination of those two approaches uh, can really set a foundation for success. The, the, the third thing that I would then say is that you can start small. You can start with an assignment or you can start with a piece of a, of a course, like participation, uh, something like that. Uh, it does, you don't have to revamp everything all at once. That can be intimidating. Um, sometimes it can actually work against you. Uh, but uh, starting small, from, built on the foundation that we were just talking about, I think can, uh, can set a path for success. Thank you so much for that really thorough kind of Kickstarter guide to getting started here. <laughs> um, you mentioned doing research and we have a lot to learn from you and we look forward to reading your book, Scarlet Letters. Is there anyone else that you'd like to shout out that we could learn from? Well, there, there are so many uh, uh, in, in this uh, world of alternative grading, uh, one of whom is one of my own uh, I, I, people I look up to, and that's on the, uh, a person on this call, and that's Star, um, who has really shaped this conversation in so many ways, um, and I think is uh, a leader in this grading reform movement. Uh, but, you know, the people that I look to in, my, in uh, this sector uh, in K-12, uh, you know, Arthur Chiravelli, who does the, the Teachers Going Gradeless uh, community. Um, there's Nick Covington and the uh, Human Restoration Project, who has done a lot of uh, um, work toward moving, uh, moving toward more authentic assessment practices in K-12. In higher ed, there's Jesse Stommel, Susan Bloom. Uh, there's, there's so many. My own colleague here, Emily Donahoe. Uh, there's, um, let's see, Courtney Sobers. There's just a, a huge community, uh, Drew Lewis, Katie Mattiani, um, that I look to to help, uh, help spark uh, my own ideas, to offer support as we go about this work. So uh, there's an ever-growing community. In fact, I, it, in my time in higher ed, there are more people talking about this now than there ever have been before. And I think there are lots of reasons for that. But we're at a we're at this really exciting moment uh, for the the reform of grading approaches that I think we haven't really seen before. It's really um, you know great to be a part of. 
Wow, I'm very impressed with your list that you had. It was almost like you were prepared for an Oscar acceptance. <laughs> <laughs> you had so many names and, and you, you said them so clearly. Um, I personally follow you um, on LinkedIn and Twitter, and I've oh, learned so you. much from your post. I'm a middle school teacher, and, and to see what you're posting um, from higher ed is, is inspiring and helpful to me when I communicate with parents and other educators. But um, where would you suggest that educators find you? Would you say LinkedIn and Twitter? Is there somewhere else they should go? I think LinkedIn and Twitter are the best places. I'm, I'm very active on Twitter and pretty active on LinkedIn. Um, and uh, always welcome any kind of conversation about this or, or any issue. So I think the only way we make progress is to work together on this. And that can only happen with conversation. So. All right, Josh, this has been wonderful. And I think that what you have to say will inspire so many educators from K through higher ed. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you all. I really appreciate the invitation and, and thanks for all the work you're doing. Thank you for learning with us today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. If you'd like any additional information from the show, check out the show notes. Learn more about Mastery Portfolio and how we support schools at MasteryPortfolio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Mastery for All and on LinkedIn on our Mastery Portfolio page. We'd love for you to engage with us. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or know someone who would be an inspiring guest, please fill out the survey found in the show notes. And we'd love your feedback. Please write a review on your favorite podcasting app. Thank you.